Welcome back to our special offstage series on women and leadership. I'm Trisha Johnson, the host of Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm handing over the mic to guest hosts for these intimate discussions on critical topics. In this show, Susan Page of USA Today speaks with global economist Danby Zamoyo. Enjoy. Welcome back. The Aspen Ideas to Go Offstage series on the way forward for women continues as we sit down with Dr. Dambisa Moyo. I'm Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Dambisa Moyo is a global economist who studies macroeconomy and international affairs. She worked at Goldman Sachs and the World Bank, and her latest book is Edge of Chaos, Why Democracy is Failing to Deliver Economic Growth and How to Fix It. Welcome. Thank you. You know, we want to talk about, just briefly, the edge of chaos. You say that democracy is in crisis around the world. What do you mean? Well, there are a whole host of um, aspects to that statement that I think um, perhaps are, are some of them are quite obvious, others perhaps less so. Um, you know, we, if you think about the idea of, um, for example, uh, one man, one vote, um, we know voter, voter participation rates in this country, in the United States, are now at around 50%, far off of that mantra of one man, one vote. Very clearly, people are not voting. We're still low-income um, people actually surveyed, uh, find that uh, the, the participation rate is less than 30%. And then there are a lot of issues around the fact that money has seeped into the political process. About 158 families, according to the New York Post, are responsible for 50% of the political contributions at the U.S. presidential election in 2016. Um, but we also see that the political freedoms have declined, according to Freedom House. Um, we've also, uh, there's a lot of recorded concern around the fact that although we have more democracies, many of those are illiberal democracies and essentially indistinguishable from authoritarian states. So we do have democracy in some respects on just on paper, but in terms of the efficacy and the efficiency of the democratic process, I think there are deep concerns. Um, and, and as a consequence, these concerns actually lead to um, the questions around the legitimacy of uh, decisions. So the loss of questions around the legitimacy of the election of President Trump, but also the legitimacy of Brexit, for example, in Britain. And we've seen the rise of populism across Europe. Um, but there are also real issues around myopia, this short-termism that's embedded in the political process and democracies. The fact that we have elections so regularly, every four years for the president in the United States, every two years because of midterms. Um, but the economic challenges that we face are all very long-term, deeply structural, and need um, that sort of long-term perspective. You know, the, the election of Donald Trump and the presidency that he's pursued since the election, I think, has concerned a lot of Americans about whether there's a democratic crisis here. Is that part of a larger global trend that you see, not just something that's affecting the United States? Um, I do. Yes, I do see that. And I think it's it's important to separate um, the current administration's style, which I would say it's clearly much more of a maverick, um, much more willing to uh, really challenge the status quo in terms of NATO, in terms of NAFTA, etc. Um, to separate that kind of um, uh, discussion from what I think are sort of deep-seated uh, corrosion of the political process that we are seeing across Europe. 
So Italy is a great example where we've seen now the middle of the political spectrum has actually collapsed and now the political debate is now dominated by populist parties from both extremes, left and right. Um, we see that Hungary and Poland, which are both members of the European Union, um, admitted as democratic countries, I have now very anti-democratic rhetoric. In fact, uh, the, the head of state, um, Orban, in Hungary has been very explicitly um, um, calling for more authoritarian style, illiberal democracies um, across Europe. So it's that kind of sentiment which I think is particularly disturbing. Um, why we see this sort of backlash um, of populism, it's not it's, it's not exactly one thing. I mean, there's clearly motivations that are anti-democratic, but also anti-capitalism, issues around that anti-migration and identity politics, which have seeped into the political di- discourse. You know, I think a lot of Americans have long believed that you need democracy if you're going to have economic growth. But you see perhaps that should be turned on its head. Talk about that. Yes. So um, there's a, there is there are some studies, um, both actually real life studies in the case of China, which is not democratic, um, that have clearly pursued and accomplished significant improvements in economic success. Um, but also there are studies that show that the the viability, the veracity of democracies actually under threat, meaning that democracies do not survive if you don't have a solid middle class in existence. So the part the, the reason or the importance of the middle class is that their job is to hold the government accountable. There's enough of a, a wealth in the system that is able to challenge the political system if the government or if the political process is not working efficiently. Um, so work by Przeworski, for example, from NYU, um, argues that below $6,000 per capita, these are unadjusted numbers, a bit old, but below $6,000 per year per capita um, means that you will have to de- you will not have democracy that stands, that's the test of time. And if you look around the world today, many poor countries that have, ostensibly have a democratic process are struggling to keep it in place. They have coups. They've got lots of um, co- you know, very combative politics that is very disruptive, precisely, I think, is uh, emblematic of this point that that has been made. And they look at a place like China that has not paid very much attention to democratic rights, but has shown a, a lot of economic progress for people. Absolutely. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in China. I've actually um, had the privilege of spending time with the president of China. And I think that there's a, a sense there that, uh, which is an important uh, line of thinking, that even Western countries, um, you know, if you look historically, they did not have democracies at the, the earlier part of the Industrial Revolution, but also the early part of their economic success. And so the question of whether, you know, I mean, if you think about the civil rights movement, universal suffrage, all of that came much much later from really the original impetus, um, you know, Switzerland only gave women right to vote in 1971. So, you know, let's you know, we put that in, in context um, there. This is much more of what they, they point to as, as evidence that um, that it, in terms of a prerequisite for economic growth, democracy is, is not. So if Americans, you know, treasure democracy, democracy is the most fundamental thing when we think of our our public our public life and if democracy is in in chaos or in crisis here what can turn it around? What can fix that? So that's a, a fantastic question. And in my book, Edge of Chaos, um, really the second half of the book is all about possible solutions to this malaise. And, you know, I, I am a 100% supporter of liberal democracies. I want them to work and I want them to function. But it is true that we've been very, uh, certainly people, commentators and economists and historians have been very good at pointing fingers at countries that are blatantly non-democratic as, as them needing to reform. But we haven't really thought about what innovation 
innovations and and sort of things we should be thinking about for our democratic processes. Um, I propose 10 things in the book. Of course, I won't go through all of them given time constraints here. Um, Six of them are targeting politicians and how to improve the politicians, um, both in terms of legitimacy, but also trying to reduce the myopia and short-term thinking that they have embedded in the system. But four of those suggestions are really targeting the voter as well. Again, with this long-term goal that we want as many people as possible to vote, we want engaged voters um, to have as much knowledge about the political process as possible. So just to give you maybe a couple of examples, um, on the political side, I look at, and by the way, I should say that all the 10 proposals have precedent around the world. So this is not me sort of cooking up something in my uh, white tower. It's really about looking around the world and seeing what sorts of innovations and trials are being put in to try and improve democracy. So on the political side, for example, Singapore, um, they pay their politicians much more money, um, but they also force them to uh, to attach this compensation to long-term outcomes. So, for example, every year the um, the, the ministers that are responsible for education and infrastructure and healthcare um, are given 30 to 40 percent bonuses based on um, outcomes such as GDP or life expectancy improvements um, built out of infrastructure. And if they don't perform, the money's clawed back out of their pensions. That's a very private sector kind of it, approach. It very is, but you know how we all are, and you know we live in America. America is you know very captive. It's the, the sort of of a, the the sort of a vanguard of market capitalism. So I would have thought this kind of thinking, which has revolutionized the private sector, might be something worth considering. Um, one other quick thing maybe worth thinking about is also having more more stringent minimum standards about who can run uh, for political office. In Britain, for example, in the 1960s, the average age of a politician or a policymaker was around 60 years old, and many of them had varied backgrounds. They were farmers, teachers, lawyers, doctors. And so they came into the political process having really met multiple decades of real-world experience. Um, today, the average age is around 40 years old in, in public policy, and many of the people who are in the British Parliament actually have not got any real-world experience. So four of your ideas are targeted at voters. Tell us yes. about one of them. So one of them, mandatory voting. Um, there are about 27 countries that have mandatory voting, um, meaning that you are required as a good citizen um, to participate in the electoral process. If you do not, you are either fined, um, and in some cases you are barred from taking on a job in public service or receiving welfare or pu- accessing public uh, goods and services. Um, countries like Australia, Belgium, Greece, uh, Luxembourg, they have mandatory voting uh, across South America many countries as well. And I think that that might actually be an impetus for voter participation rates to improve really far far more than where they are today, which I think is very problematic. I want to talk about women in in leadership. You yourself have served on any number of, of corporate boards, but it's been a real struggle to bring racial and gender diversity to boards. And you look at what's happening with CEOs of big companies in the United States, and the number of women is actually declining. Why is it? Why has this been so hard? Well, you know, I, first and foremost, I, I try to be a bit more optimistic about where we are. Um, you know, there are about, rough guesses, about 20, 24, maybe 23, 24 women who are now at the helm of large um, corporations, um, you know, the big, you know, if all different sectors. So old technology, new technology, um, you, we've had women at the helm of consumer goods companies, etc. Um, and I think that that's progress we should, we should embrace and celebrate. It is also true that in the political sphere, we've had women, at, you know, 
know, clearly succeed at the political level. So we, you know, we have Angela Merkel and across, you know, Theresa May, etc. Um, so I think we there has been a good move, um, but clearly nowhere near as as much as we would like to see. Um, I will say that uh, you know, in, I think corporations have done a lot to try and um, encourage women's participation. I mean, this is no longer a sort of uh, um, secondary matter that's not really discussed openly. It is very much dis- discussed openly. How do we get more women? How do we get more diversity? Not just racial diversity, but also diversity of ideas. You want people around the boardroom to come with very different ideas about how they see different way, um, di- you know, the world, how the world works. Um, and I think that uh, the, I'm optimistic that that is definitely in train. Um, but Having said that, I think one of the big um, sort of uh, uh, appeals that I would make to women is that we also need to put our hands up. And one of the problems that I've seen is that um, sometimes women don't put their hands up and you know throw their hat in the ring for different jobs. And there's a whole you know sort of literature on why that might be the case. But I think that sometimes it's our, at our own disservice. It doesn't mean that we'll get the job, but we will at least get feedback that will help us you know to be much more um, thoughtful about how we're pursuing our careers. I see men do it all the time. You know, they, they absolutely know they're not eligible for the role of CEO for a company. But guess what? Because they submitted their application, the board of these companies feel entitled or responsible to give them critical feedback. And I think we just have to get into that mindset that it's okay to be to, to, to get rejected. Um, but we, we should actually see the value in getting um, critical feedback, which is absolutely imperative. Yeah, I've, I've seen that in, in my own life. And when uh, young women come to me for advice. I say, just say yes. Yeah, exactly. If, if you've got an opportunity, just say yes to it. The worst thing that can happen is that you'll fail. You'll Absolutely. learn something and you'll move on. Absolutely. And the other thing I would just point out, which might be might be surprising to some people, I for all the boards that I, I've served on, which are you know more more than a handful, um, I've never been approached by um, somebody. It's not sort of out of a hat. Somebody just said, oh, you know, you, it's just so wonderful. We want to, here's an engraved invitation. Come and join our board. It never happens like that. It's all about networking. Working and it is grueling and time-consuming and frustrating and of course if, if people have families and have outside obligations which you know disproportionately tend to fall on women I think it does create an additional challenge but it, it absolutely must be um, understood that it's really a network um, and that's where I think men have ten- traditionally benefited from understanding that and I think women perhaps not so much. You were born in Zambia. Yes. How is it different? How are, how what are the cultural differences when it comes to women seeking positions of more authority, of women trying to become leaders? Yes. So uh, you know, I, I often think about this idea of personal responsibility, personal accountability. Um, you know, growing up in Africa. Uh, and I hear this from other women who've grown up in, in India or in South Asia and in South America. Um, you know, there, we 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 don't have the luxury of the kind of um, the sort of judicial and legal infrastructure that women have in, in and the, in the protection of rights that women have in the United States and across Europe. I mean, for us, very culturally, we're fully exposed and really, I mean, dare I say it, um, you know, governments really only get involved when there's mass rape in, in a country or it's really um, systemic. Um, and that ultimately means, and for a whole host of reasons, they don't have the resources, they don't know how to address these things, we don't have a judicial system that works um, very efficiently. Um, so for that 
that reason, women have to take on a much greater onus on how they manage their careers and how they actually navigate living in these societies. So um, one of the debates that I have, ongoing debates I have with many of my American um, girlfriends is that, you know, f- you know, in the in the era in which we live today, there are a lot of choices that I know I wouldn't ha- have made um, growing up in Africa. I wouldn't have gone to a man's house, even if he were just a, a friend, because I know that if something happened, um, I would have very few protections um, from the law. So that automatically means that there's a lot more um, onus and responsibility for me to, to decide to what kind of choices that need to be made. Now, obviously, this is a very you know, very, it's one one man's view, as they say, and it's also um, it's very uh, touchy because I'm not at all saying that uh, rape should be endorsed, and I think that it's a horrible situation to hear that women um, are having to be subjected to this. But I was a 21 year old woman in male dominated sectors, and I, I can say it's hard to navigate, but it's not impossible. And I think that we have to just maybe be a bit more aggressive about how we manage our own um, careers as much as we do to try and um, change the way men think about engagement with women in the workplace. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I think, and I think perhaps on balance more about men and institutions and how, uh, you know, how they accept and uh, um, appreciate women in the workplace. But it's not to say that women have nothing to do. We have a lot to do as well. And when young women come to you for advice, which I'm sure happens uh, all the time, Mm -hmm. what do you tell them? Well, I give them the very headline answer, which is focus, hard work and discipline because it is grueling. But, you know, in terms of engagement with men, my view is that um, I've benefited a lot from from getting critical advice, from knowing what job opportunities are available, from having the, the really constructive relationships with different men. Um, and by, by, I don't mean personal relationships. I mean, you know, work relationships and, um, you know, have the lines been gray on occasion? Yes, but you know that's where being polite and saying, "Listen, just to be absolutely clear, that's not you know that that's not part of the discussion." I, I would not say I've ever been subjected to any um, you know horrible situation, and I thank God for that. But I think for young women, they just have to understand that um, I really believe that we cannot succeed without engaging with men. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should also uh, allow men to take advantage of us. But part of that means that we have the bigger onus to manage how we engage with people um, and make sure we're not sending mixed signals, but also when people behave in an inappropriate way that we make it very clear, but in a constructive way so that we can continue to work together. Because I think that it's it also is, it, you know, certainly in the interim, as men continue to disproportionately um, be the wealthiest and have the most power in business, um, I think that... Uh, if, we, if we're too aggressive um, in how we deal with it, not I'm not saying don't deal with it, I'm saying how we deal with it really critically matters because if we don't deal with it in an appropriate way, I think we could end up losing. Dr. Dembisa Moyo, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dr. Dembisa Moyo is a global economist. Time magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. I'm Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Thanks for listening.